0: Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. I'm also very privileged and blessed to be down here today. Uh, just a little bit about myself, I'd say, I would share with you first of all uh, that I just gave, my, I, not just gave my life to the Lord, that'd be bad, all right? I gave my life to the Lord uh, on December uh, 16th, 2011. December 16th, 2011. So it hasn't been that long for me to have been walking with the Lord and having recognized my sin and and received Jesus as my Savior. And I could also recognize some of the conditions that I was in spiritually prior to coming to Jesus. I would say there was a season of my life that, you know, just I was, uh, that I just could care less about God's word. I could care less about Jesus. There was a season of my life uh, that I could say that, well, I wanted to know more about God but I was dealing with some hard, troubling things in my life. You know, particularly, I think back in 2008 with the passing of my dad and just even wanting to know more about God, but really just wondering if Jesus was truly as loving and as powerful as the word proclaims him to be. There's a season of my life that I could say uh, that, you know, I wanted to grow closer to God, but I was very much caught up in the cares and concerns of this life. I was very much more, uh, you know, just concerned with the, the riches of this world. But where I find myself today is just being wholeheartedly surrendered to God. And I would say that that's a condition that probably represents a lot of people in this room. That, you know, you probably fall in one of those categories. Really, Jesus said it in a parable uh, that he gave. But the reason I bring that up is, although we all, you know, we all come in and might come in in different spiritual conditions, the thing that I would, would want you to recognize today that I think we all have something in common and I think the thing we have in common is our desire to be happy. And that's why the message I'd like to share with you today is one that I've titled The Pursuit of Happiness, where we'll look at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. I pray that wherever, whatever condition you find yourself in today, that you would allow the word of God to speak to your heart. And the first thing I would give you is a definition. This desire to be happy is I would give you the definition of happiness, which means this. It means a pleasurable or satisfying experience, or you could also say the state of well-being. So a pleasurable or satisfying experience, or the state of well-being. And just to do a poll in this room. How many of you here today desire to be happy in life? Just raise your hand up if you desire to be happy. It's very interesting, just like all the other services. I didn't see everybody raise your hand, which I think maybe some people think I'm asking a trick question. There's no trick question there, right? I I think we all want to be happy in life. And I would also say this. I think that, you know, how we make our decisions is oftentimes motivated or dependent upon, is this going to make me happy? A lot of decisions we make in life are like that. I'll give you a simple example. Think about the next time you go to a restaurant. You're going to open up the menu and you're going to look through that menu on what you want to order. Now, very few of us, I would wager to say none of us, unless you just want to try to prove me wrong, none of us are going to go in and order our least favorite thing on that menu, right? We're going to order the thing that sounds the most appealing. We're going to order maybe something new. And that's the reality. And I think that just with that simple example is how we make a lot of decisions in life. What's going to bring me satisfaction? What's going to put me in a state of well-being? We desire to be happy, Well, as we look at this, the Beatitudes, this is the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes, another thing you can use as a title is you can call these the blessings. The Beatitudes could also be called the blessings. And the reason I say that is because Jesus will use the phrase nine times, blessed. Blessed. And what's that definition coming from the Greek word? Remember, we're reading an English translation of what was originally written in Greek in a Greek manuscript. Right, And what was that word for blessed? Well, it meant this. Blessed meant more than happiness. The experience of hope and joy, of spiritual well-being and prosperity. I want to give that again. So blessed means more than happiness, the experience of hope and joy, of spiritual well-being and prosperity. So Jesus will give eight declarations of blessings here where he teaches us how to be not just happy, but to be more than happy, to experience this more than happiness, this hope and joy, this spiritual well-being and prosperity. But before we read that, I'd like us to pray and allow God's Word to minister to us. There's a psalm that uh, just falls in line with what I want to share today, but Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. It says this, it says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we're so grateful to be here today. Lord, as uh, many would raise their hand to say, yes, we desire to be happy. Lord, we have to recognize many of us come in today um, struggling. God, maybe we're dealing with, uh, you know, just a season of anger, maybe a season of depression. God, a season of hardship, a season of grief. But Lord, we want to open up your word and have ears to hear. God, I recognize that there's a lot of different conditions of our hearts in this room today. But Lord, we know that you have the power to touch any heart, because you are God, and you are our creator. So we just commit this time to you. Lord, establish our thoughts and speak to our hearts. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12, if you would read it with me, notice what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Before we jump into the section of scripture, I think it's good for us to understand the context of what we just read. This is actually one of the first uh, great events in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, who began his ministry at the age of 30. And as he would begin his ministry, uh, you know, it started really with the initiation at the, uh, at the Jordan River with John the Baptist. As Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came down in heaven, took upon human flesh, would go there to the Jordan River, a man who was known as a forerunner of the Messiah, And as he would go before John, John would say, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus identifying with our humanity, the only person, that could, the only one that ever could take up two natures, to be fully God and fully man, what he did is he wanted to identify with us. And he was baptized there by John the Baptist. And immediately from there, he was taken to the wilderness by the Spirit, to be tempted by the devil. And remember, Jesus faced three primary temptations, similar to what we face in temptation. A physical temptation, where the the devil told him, turn that stone into bread. He he faced an emotional temptation, where the devil said, well, if God really loved you, if you stand on the pinnacle of the temple and jump off, and surely he'll catch you. So he faced that emotional temptation, and that spiritual temptation, where the devil took him up to a high mountain to look over the earth and said, I'll give you all of this if you'll just bow to me. But we know that Jesus refuted the devil with all three of those things, saying that it has been written, right? And so after that, the the devil left him until an opportune time, and and we know that that Jesus was ministered to by angels. From there, we say shortly after, he would go into a, a synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. He would open up the scroll of Isaiah, and he would read from what we have of Isaiah chapter 61, and he would read and proclaim to the people, Messiah has come. Well, unfortunately, they didn't receive him. The people actually rejected that. And, you know, isn't this just the carpenter's son and chased him out? But we know that Jesus didn't just use words, but he demonstrated that he was the Messiah. He went about healing people of their sickness and disease, casting out demons from them and teaching great teachings. And so what we have, and we know Jesus also called at this point the 12 disciples to himself. And not just the 12 close disciples, but there was also a multitude of people that were following him. So that's what we're looking at in this section of Scripture. And as we go through these 12 verses, uh, as much as we can look at the Bible as historically accurate, like you can go today and you can go to the Mount of Beatitudes there in Jerusalem, and you can see, go to Capernaum, the town which he would have been ministering in, and this is a literal historical place. You can see the artifacts, the scientific evidence of the existence of Jesus Christ and many of his disciples and followers. We could read the Bible and grow a lot of knowledge, but here's my prayer and my heart for us today is that we would look at these 12 verses and allow God to speak to us very specifically because application, one of the most important things in studying the scripture is what does this mean for me? God, what do you have for me? So let's notice again back in verse one. And the first point I'd give you that I would hope that you take from today is when it says says this in verse one, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. Seeing the multitudes. The the very first point that I see in this is that Jesus saw the crowd. He, He wasn't, and he modeled this so much that he saw people. He saw beyond just his own desires and his own needs, but he saw the people. And I would challenge that for you and I today, we should have that spiritual discernment like our Savior. That, that God desires for us to have that, the, the eyes to see the multitudes of people around us. But I would also say it's easy for us to get distracted. It's easy to get distracted in the busyness of life. It's easy to neglect those who God has placed right in front of us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can say we probably have a lot of times in this room where we can say we've missed opportunity to share the gospel or to minister to somebody. But I would say this, when our heart is in tune with God, we will see more clearly the people that God has placed strategically around us. When our heart is in tune with God, we'll see more clearly the people that God has strategically placed around us. So seeing the multitudes, he went on a mountain. And then notice the second part, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, if I wanted to be very literal, what this would have looked like on the Mount of Beatitudes is I would have brought a chair up here today and sat down. And actually this morning, I asked the, uh, I asked the guys in the back if they would mind stacking the chairs up uh, this morning so we could just stack the chairs and everyone in here could stand, but uh, they shut that down. So, you know, praise the Lord, or maybe I'll get an invite back to teach again someday, right? But, you know, this is kind of what it looked like where Jesus was seated and, and the disciples would have been standing. But, but all jokes aside, notice this back in verse one, that when the disciples were seated, or sorry, when he was seated, his disciples came to Him. The next point I would bring out out of verse 1 is that the disciples came to Him. And what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. A disciple is a learner. As a disciple is one that sits under the teaching of another. And the disciples came to Jesus. And that's the heart that, 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 you know, that I would just think, ask you to, to, to check your heart and say, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you come to Him? Before He gives these eight declarations of blessings, they couldn't have received these if they weren't there. And the reality is to really receive the blessing of God, I've got to come. That's the simple part. That's the only responsibility God requires of me is to come. And so his disciples came to him. And just encourage you today, if you would have been in one of those categories that I shared with earlier of a condition of my own life where I wasn't walking with the Lord. Jesus just simply says, come, come to him. Let's notice in verse 2. In verse 2, it says, then he opened his mouth and taught them. He opened his mouth and taught them. And again, when you look at the original Greek context of this phrase, this represents how Jesus spoke forth with a boldness and authority. He spoke forth with a boldness and authority. And I just love that. And you'll see even at the end, as a Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at the Beatitudes, but this is the Sermon on the Mount, which covers chapter 5, 6, and 7. And you can look at the last phrase in chapter 7 that the people were astonished because he spoke with authority not as the scribes and not as the religious leaders of the Of the day, excuse me. And so, when you look at this, when he opened his mouth, he spoke forth with authority. And I would say that a point of application is God has entrusted us also with a very important message. He has entrusted us with the very gospel, the very gospel message. And overseeing youth, one of the things that I um, am am constantly talking to our youth about is, do you know the gospel? Many of our, uh, many of your kids who are upstairs right now, I mean, they've grown, they've grown up in the church, they've grown up in a Christian home, um, but. Do they know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? Do I know the gospel? And I I encourage our kids or challenge them in this way. Can you explain the gospel to me in three simple sentences or three simple phrases? And many of them, I would say, cannot. And so what is the gospel? What is this message that God has called us to go and exclaim boldly? Like what Paul would say, I'm unashamed of the gospel for it is the power of salvation. Well, the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ, the son of God, came down and died for our sin, that which separates us from God and that Jesus Christ was buried and rose again, and that anybody that believes that shall not perish, but have everlasting life with him. That's the message God has given us. And when you think about that, when Jesus spoke forth boldly, I think by point of application, He desires us when we're presented with an opportunity to share our faith, to share our testimony, and to do it with a confidence and a boldness. I love when I meet with people. A lot lot of times I like to meet outside of the church, to go to a coffee shop or to go out to maybe a a place to eat. And the reason why is mainly because now we can be around people that don't hear, uh, you know, the gospel as much. And when when you open your Bible at a restaurant or at a coffee shop and you're talking to somebody and praying with somebody, let me say it's powerful not just between the two people there, it's powerful to the people around you. You know, and that kind of a thing, to speak it forth with a boldness. And so, you know, as you look at that, uh, let's, let's now jump into the blessings. Now, Jesus gives eight declarations of blessings. And again, remember that word blessed. The word blessed, where it means more than happiness, hope and joy. You know, all of those things that are encompassed in this word. But I would, I would ask you to also think, when Jesus gives these beatitudes and these blessings, think about how we use the word "bless." You know, we pray over our meal, and what do we ask? We say, God, bless this food. We, we just played for Pastor Ed. What do we say? God, bless Pastor Ed. You know, bring them to a place of, of fortune, prosperity. Bring them to a place, uh, you know, that, you know, when we pray over our food, bring this to health to my body. That's what we mean by bless it. And this is the word, uh, this is the word that Jesus is using here, that, that would bring forth good fortune, that would bring forth health, and bring forth prosperity, is, is what he's speaking here. But what you'll notice in these things It's not the prosperity gospel, right? It's not the thing that we hear where people twist the word. What you see here, uh, these blessings, is they can be very contradictory to what we normally look and think of, of what true happiness is. And I would say this. I think a lot of times we have our definition of happiness wrong. Because the happiness of this world is oftentimes hollow and empty. The things that bring happiness in this life are often temporary and conditional. But the happiness Jesus is talking about is a rich and satisfying happiness. I was thinking of a conversation we've had recently, I was having with a friend of mine recently, where he said he was woken up in the middle of the night with this burden on his heart and this question on his heart Does God want us to be happy? Does God want me to be happy? So much was this burdening him that he reached around. It was 2 in the morning. He, He tapped his wife and woke her up and said, Hey, do you think God wants us to be happy? And his wife woke up, you know, kind of, you know, like, you know, with those glossy eyes and said... I don't care. I don't want you to be happy. Go to bed, right? And so, you know, the reality, I told him when he told me that story, I was like, man, I hope you weren't in a really rough condition at that time. Uh, but you know, the reality is, uh, you know, like he's still doing okay. Don't worry. You can, you know, he's doing, he's doing good. But the reality is this, that to answer that question, because I think sometimes we wonder the same thing. Does God want me to be happy? Because sometimes as Christians, we think being happy, maybe we're being unspiritual, you know, that church and, and, and real life are separated. But no, I think God wants you to be happy. I, I know God wants you to be happy. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 10. What, what does Jesus say? He says this, "'The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy.'" And the thief, of course, being the enemy of our soul. But what does he say? My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Well, who are the them? He's speaking of his sheep, his followers, those disciples, those that follow Jesus. He says his purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. So yes, God wants us to be happy, but not at the expense of being unholy. God wants us to be happy, but not at the expense of being unholy. And so take special note as we go into these next uh, few verses from verse 3 to 12 at these eight declarations of blessings that Jesus gives the people as he really helps us to redefine what is true happiness as we are on that pursuit of happiness. So verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember, you can use the term more than happy are the poor in spirit. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to have a true evaluation of yourself compared to other people. No, not compared to other people. It's to have a true evaluation of yourself compared to a holy and righteous God. It means to be spiritually bankrupt. The reality is oftentimes we do the latter. What I said, you know, we like to compare ourselves to other people from a spiritual condition. And we could look around. That's one of the things that kept me from coming to Christ for so long is I could look around and say, uh, well, this person's worse than me, so I must be okay. This person's worse than me. Even Christians that I knew, this person's worse than me. I must be okay. Or I would have this thought, well, I've done more good than bad, so God must accept me. The reality is to be poor in spirit is to be spiritually bankrupt because I have weighed my spiritual condition and compared my spiritual condition against a holy and righteous God who is perfect. And that means to be spiritually bankrupt. And just to know that this is a first step that we have to take to be to, towards God, that, that none of us can be right with God without having been spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit, recognizing my condition apart from him. But as we look at this blessed, this declaration of blessing, this declaration of more than happy, I want to look at the opposite as well. So if Jesus says, more than happy is the poor in spirit, well, what's the opposite of that? The opposite would be to be prideful and self-sufficient. So the opposite of being poor in spirit is to be prideful and self-sufficient. So I wonder if you're in a condition of unhappiness in your life, is this because that there's pride, unchecked pride in your heart? And the reality is, pride is something that every one of us has faced, every one of us has struggled with, to be self-sufficient. That's the very message that this culture and world tries to teach us. And if that pricks your heart today by the, by the, by the uh, Holy Spirit, I just would give you this verse and pray this verse over you. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, which tells us, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? And can't you see that his kindness is, is intended to turn you from your sin? Or as the new King James would put it, the goodness of God leads toward repentance. To turn from that, that. Let the goodness of God allow you to turn from that condition. But also as Jesus gives this declaration of blessing, more than happy is a poor in spirit, he shows a reward. And what is the reward of being poor in spirit? Well, he says the reward is this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the very message Jesus came to proclaim is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, more than happy are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Even the day that uh, Jesus would stand before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world, right, that I have come to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? What is this blessing, this blessed place? Well, this is that eternity that we look forward to. The kingdom of heaven is, you know, what, the way that the scripture would proclaim it is like this. It is, the, it is this earth apart from the effects of sin. So what would this, this world look like apart from the effects of sin? Well, it would be no natural disasters, no evil, and no war. It would be, what is the kingdom of heaven? It would be these bodies apart from the effects of sin. Well, what is, how has sin affected my body? With sickness, disease, and sorrow. It would, be, what, and, and it would be, the kingdom of heaven would be relationships apart from the effects of sin so you think about your and I relationships where there'd be no more conflict and strife between one another. That's what the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, more than happy are the poor in spirit. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. So if you're taking notes, you can say this, being poor in spirit brings happiness because you have security in your soul of your blessed eternal destination. Being poor in spirit brings happiness because you have security in your soul of your blessed eternal destination. All right, let's look at the next one in verse four. The next declaration of blessing, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. This is an interesting one. So we looked at the original Greek of that word blessed, more than happy, hope and joy, you know, a a place of satisfaction. But then what this word mourn, this isn't just your normal grief. Because that that, that encompasses the mourning that we have in life, the grief that we have in life. But this is showing even deeper than that. This is a deep, deep sorrow. So picture yourself if you were there and Jesus. You were alive at the Sermon on the Mount. You're one of the disciples. Essentially what Jesus told the people is, Happy are you when you're sad like, what does that mean? You know, and and another way you can look at the Beatitudes, you could look at them as the contradictions. So if anyone ever tries to use this argument, one that I used to try to use is, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions. You know, the Bible's full. I would say, I don't believe the Bible has errors, but sure, there's some contradictions. These things contradict the very practical part of who we are. Oh, how happy is he who is sad. But what does Jesus mean by this? Because of course, Jesus is speaking kingdom principles in our life. So what did he mean to this audience here? He's saying this, that in this life, because of sin, we're going to face trouble and tribulation. However, we know that, as he said in John chapter 16, he has overcome the world. So the reality is this, when you're faced with grief and you're faced with mourning, the declaration of blessing is when we turn to God in that time. So the blessing is this, when, we, when you turn to God in your time of mourning, because here's the opposite. The opposite is if when you struggle with grief that we all will face, believer or unbeliever, When you face with times of grief, do you turn towards something else other than God? Maybe a relationship, maybe a substance, maybe any other kind of vice. And the Bible has a word for it. If you know it, you can say it out loud. That is called an idol. That's okay, I know I'm used to teaching the junior high, so you can talk out loud. Well that's called a what? An idol. Anything apart from anything I place above God is an idol in my life, and that's the danger. And I wonder if you're in a condition of unhappiness in your life? Is it because in your times of pain, you're not turning towards God, but you're turning toward the vices of this world? What's the reward? Blessed are those who mourn. How? For they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm reminded of a quote from C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes that says this. It says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by. So how does mourning lead to happiness? It leads us to happiness because it takes you to a place where you experience the compassion and love of God most tangibly. Oh, how happy is he who is sad when you turn to God because you will experience the compassion and love of God most tangibly. Let's look at the next uh, blessing, declaration of blessing here in verse 5. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. So what does it mean to be meek? For such a small word, it has a huge depth to it. And it can be uh, another word you could use is humble, but it's even deeper than just being humble. To be meek is to be humble, to be known as uh, somebody with self-control, to be willing to submit, and and to consider others above yourself. So again, to be meek is to be humble, to have self-control, to be willing to submit, and to consider others above yourself. So what's the opposite of being meek? The opposite of being meek would be uh, somebody that is in a desire uh, for a position of prominence and power over people. So the opposite of being meek, blessed oh how happy are those who are meek, is to be in a place where you have this desire to be in a place of power and prominence over others. So if you're in a condition of unhappiness today, maybe ask this question to yourself and before God and say, is this condition of unhappiness because you're striving for the power and prestige in this life? What's the reward? Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Why? What's the reward? He says, for they shall inherit the earth. And I would say this, that for you to find and for me to find true satisfaction and purpose in life is to be humble and not seek a place of prominence. Is to be meek, not seeking to be exalted, but seeking the place to serve. And, and I'll show you what I mean. If you would, let's, let's turn to Mark chapter 10. I want to read it together. Mark chapter 10 in a conversation Jesus had with the disciples. Mark chapter 10, verse 42 and 45. And what's interesting is, you know, we're all trying to find purpose in life. All, yeah, we all want to find happiness, of course. But, you know, there's a reality. And I can say, um, coming, you know, just personally, during those times of not knowing Jesus, of that emptiness that was inside that emptiness that I think every human has dealt with at one point where we lay our head down at night and we just wonder, what's my purpose? What's the point of me being here? Right, and that's where Jesus says, when he says, you shall inherit the earth, I believe he's speaking that you're gonna find your purpose here in this life. Blessed are the meek, why? Because you'll know the true calling I have upon your life. Notice Mark chapter 10, verse 42. As the disciples are arguing about who would be the greatest, who would sit on his left hand and right hand, Jesus would say this. But Jesus called, to himself, called them to himself and said, "'You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be servant.'" And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Man, think about how hard. So that's the contradiction, right? What does our world teach us? Be prosperous. Amass wealth. You know, at any cost. What does Jesus say? Be the slave of all. Be the slave of all. Now, this isn't speaking of forced labor labor slavery. He's saying that you willfully choose the low position. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They will find the true purpose and calling. Not when I try to just live for myself, but when I live and consider others even above myself. Submit to others. So meekness leads to happiness. How? Because that's how you experience God's true purpose for us in this life. Meekness leads to happiness because that's how you'll experience God's true purpose in life. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at the next blessing. The next beatitude is here where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So somebody that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, righteousness is those that have a desire to see justice in the world and those who demonstrate godly integrity and virtue. So the hunger and thirst for righteousness is I have a desire uh, to see justice and I demonstrate integrity and virtue. So what's the opposite of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Well, it's desiring a life of comfort and ease. Man, and that pricks my heart. Uh, When I was preparing this study, and I, you know, be real and honest with you, just about a week, uh, you know, I knew uh, a week and a half ago that I'd be teaching this weekend, and man, I tell you, the warfare came right away where I was dealing with some very heavy things. And and I could say, you know, there's a verse that God has really spoken into my life that, you know, 1 Timothy 4.12, where it says, you know, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers. And even in verse 15, a little bit later on, where he says, let your progress be evident. And God has done an accelerated work in my life, but the reality is I don't always enjoy it. And I, I should enjoy it. I'm not saying that in a good way. I should enjoy everything God's doing in my life. But what was the hard thing is because I'm desiring comfort and ease. So what's the opposite of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is just to desire the easy route comfort and ease, because when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's going to take you to hard places. It's going to take you to uncomfortable situations, and that's what God is calling us to, right? So if you've ever considered, why are you unhappy? Where's the condition of, of your unhappiness? Is it, could it be, could it be because you're not heeding the personal convictions that God has given you? You, you? You've been, you know, God has placed it on your heart through your conscience, but you haven't been heeding that thing. But what's the reward? Jesus says, more than happy is that person that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Why? For they shall be filled. Blessed is those those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It reminds me of the time where Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 14, or John chapter 4. And at the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan woman drawing water. And Jesus had this conversation saying this. He says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. What I picture of this blessing when Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I know that we see things even more magnified than the disciples of this day saw. As we have the fullness of the revelation of God, we can recognize that Jesus has given his spirit to those who believe. He has given us a spirit. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For you shall be filled. The good things you search toward, the, the good thing you strive toward, isn't out of your own ability and strength. It's by the very power of God in you. You've been filled. The moment you said yes, Jesus, I believe you died for my sin. The moment you confessed that and believed it in your heart, the Holy Spirit came in. He gave you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have been filled. And and that's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because you have been filled. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness leads to happiness because it leads you to lasting satisfaction. To hunger and thirst for righteousness leads to happiness because it leads you to lasting satisfaction. Let's look at the next one in verse 7. The next beatitude Jesus gives in verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. More than happy are the merciful. And this is somebody who is kind and compassionate. Somebody that would be sympathetic to the misfortune of others, or somebody that would be quick to forgive. So, to be merciful, I'm um, kind and compassionate, sympathetic towards others' misfortune, and quick to forgive. So, what's the opposite? The opposite would be unforgiving and bitter. Unforgiving and bitter. Pastor Ed taught a great Bible study a few Wednesdays back as he closed off uh, Second Kings or wrapped up Second Kings about unforgiveness. And I know it's one of the messages he brought um, when he went to Tucson and taught on the Wednesday night at the church. And I think the reality is every one of us in this room has been hurt by somebody. Every one of us in this room has the right to be bitter towards somebody. But the reality is, Jesus says, just as I've forgiven you, so we should forgive others. Just as I've forgiven you, so we should forgive others. And so, blessed are the merciful, Well, the opposite of that being unforgiving and bitter, I wonder if the condition, if you're in a condition of unhappiness, could it be that you still are harboring hard feelings towards somebody? That that bitterness is defiling you from the inward out? And just remind you of what the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, when it says this, speaking of Jesus, this high priest of ours understands our weakness. For he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And there we will receive his mercy and, he, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. The reality is much as we've been hurt, remember Jesus has said he has forgiven us an an un, uh, you know, a debt that we, can't, we could never pay back, a debt that we could never reconcile. Jesus has paid that for us when he died for us on the cross. And when you think about how Jesus forgave, think about the words that he had on the cross, God. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. The very people that spit at him, the very people that punched him, and the very people that nailed him to the cross. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. And, that, and by implication and by application is you and I as well. Right? As we were, all of us that have sinned, have, have essentially cursed God in that. And, and so Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, why? What's the reward? More than happy are the merciful because you shall obtain mercy. So being merciful leads to happiness because you in turn will experience the mercy of God, which we so desperately need. The mercy of God leads, being merciful leads to happiness because we will in turn experience the mercy of God, which we all so desperately need. Verse eight. The next declaration of blessing is when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. So to be pure in heart, what this means, and again, I'm giving you definitions, really taking them out of the, uh, the, the, that Greek context. The definition of be pure in heart is to be blameless, above reproach, to be innocent, and to lack guilt. So I'll say that again. Being pure in heart is to be blameless, above reproach, innocent, and lacking guilt. What's the opposite of being pure in heart? Well, the opposite to being pure in heart is to be weighed down with a guilty conscience. So I wonder today, if any, for any of us that are dealing in a condition of unhappiness, could it be a result of unconfessed and unrepentant sin? And I, and I want to encourage you in this, that, you know, that's the condition of all of us. For all of us, none of us are perfect. I don't come to you up here, uh, you know, as if I'm a perfect man. But I know, even like Paul said, not that I'm perfected, not that I've already attained, but I press forward. And, and the reality is, when you, when you come to a condition where you're just like, man, in life I'm not happy, do you have something in your life that, that there's just this guilt that's weighing down on you that you just haven't repented of and you haven't turned from? And remember what the Bible says about sin. sin. God takes sin serious. He says, one, every one of us has sinned, and the penalty of that sin, because he's a holy and righteous God, the penalty of sin is separation. The penalty of that sin is separation. But what's the reward? To be pure in heart. Jesus says, blessed more than happy are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. I want to give you a verse. It's a cool verse in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 and 26. And it was a prophecy given through Ezekiel, that would be um, for the future and even one that you can see today where God would say this, that then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you and I'll take out of your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. The reality that you have to recognize, the reality that I have to recognize is that filth in my heart And that filth in my life is not something I can just purpose to change. Now, you might do successful for a while. I think of the many years that I, uh, you know, that I smoked cigarettes. And there were times that I could quit and times I would just come back. But let me say, when did I really quit smoking cigarettes? Is when I finally gave my life to the Lord. Like, he takes these things. He washes. He's the one that gives you true, lasting power. That he'll clean you and lift you up. Amen. But you know what's hard with that? What's hard with that is that sometimes, so often we try to do it in our own strength. We try to do it in our own ability. We try to clean up our own life. We try to come to God like I can be good and come to you, like I can make myself good before I come to you, and we can't. Or maybe, I don't don't see any going on, but maybe there's people elbowing the person next to you. Maybe you are elbowing a spouse like, hey, this one's for you. But the reality is we can't change our spouse, right? We could pray for them, but even my prayer, I can't force God's will upon somebody. God is gentle. God desires us to come to him. But you remember, God will never force himself upon any of us. He'll show us the truth and encourage us to come. Remember, even at that beginning, the disciples came. Right? And that's the thing that we have to recognize uh, here in this verse, that God is the one that will change your heart. God is the one that will cleanse that from you. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. So being pure in heart leads to happiness. How? Because you can have a confidence and awareness of God's presence in your life. And that's of course through the power of the Holy Spirit. Being pure in heart leads to happiness because you can have a confidence and awareness of God's presence in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at the next one with me in verse nine. Verse 9, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And this is a, a more simple one to understand because to be a peacemaker is just what it sounds like. It's one who promotes unity and seeks to establish resolution. So somebody who promotes unity and seeks to establish resolution with conflicts. So what's the opposite of being a peacemaker? Well, this, the opposite of that would be someone who thrives on dissension and debate. You know, I know that my family, my last name of Withers, uh, we're known as a family of being very stubborn. And that's not something I'm proud of, but that's the reality as I look at my my life and why it took me so long to come to God. And as I look at my family, we can be known as a stubborn people. And I can tell you that, you know, someone who thrives on dissension and debate, I I can tell you God has definitely worked this in me. Because prior, especially prior to coming to Christ— In any argument, I would never back down from a fight. I would never back down from an argument. And if I was in an argument, you believe, I wouldn't stop until at least I got the last word. Actually, the guy that would evangelize to me back in 2005, uh, you know, he was trying to talk to me about Jesus. And I remember that debate ended, not because I was convinced, but I really, at some point, I had kind of refuted everything he came. And I just, I made sure I had the last word. But that's the opposite of what Jesus is saying of blessed are the peacemaker. Happy are those, more than happy are the peacemakers. So I wonder if you're in a condition of unhappiness, is it because you have unresolved conflict in your life? But what's the reward? The reward for being a peacemaker is this. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, and I want us to turn Second Corinthians chapter five. Uh, I want to drive this home with another scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, understanding our identity as a believer in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And another thing, when you think about the opposite of being a peacemaker, you know, I think about how so often I've seen social media used. And it's unfortunate that, you know, people think that we can, you know, the, the way we, we voice our opinion um, and declare things is through these uh, debates on social media. And I, I'm just going to say, as a, as a Christian, as a, as a lover of Jesus Christ and as a follower of Him, I have yet to see somebody, uh, you know, come to salvation, eternal salvation, through a Facebook debate about theological things. Amen? I mean, have you seen it? I mean, am I wrong? Am I the only one? Like, I haven't seen that. And I just encourage you not to, you know, to take a platform and use it, but just to really say, like being a peacemaker is even if you're right, that you'd be willing... Uh, That you'd be willing to be at peace. Even with Jesus, he wasn't always refuting the Pharisees. There was times that he would turn and just walk away. He wasn't always standing up and trying to defend himself and and he was the truth, the way, the life. And Jesus even knew that he didn't have to always speak forth. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 recognize our identity and the importance of being a peacemaker because it says this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 he says, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, and all things are of God, who through Jesus Christ has given us a ministry of reconciliation. Notice that he has given us what—a ministry of reconciliation. Verse nineteen: That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So remember our identity. When you think of blessed are the peacemaker, remember your identity. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, bringing people to him, a world that is far from him. And also he's given us the word of reconciliation that we would speak into people's life to give them resolution to their conflict. So, so how does this, you know, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. So how does this bring us happiness? Being, uh, being a peacemaker leads to happiness because we'll be used by God to bring healing and restoration into the lives of others. Let's look at the last beatitude back in Matthew chapter 5. It's in verse 10 through 12, this uh, this final declaration of blessing. And Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There have been some very challenging declarations of blessings thus far but this one is the most challenging. This is why I believe Jesus spent three verses, um, spent a little more time on this. Blessed are those who are persecuted. How can you be happy when you're persecuted? Because think about what that word persecuted means. It means to be harassed. It means to be chased or driven away by force. It means to be mistreated. It means to be defamed. And, and the reality is, you know, that's the condition that uh, Christians will face at times, right? At times we will be persecuted when we take a stand. And this one's hard to understand, so instead of jumping into what is the opposite, let's just go right to the blessing. How can we be blessed to be persecuted for righteousness? Because Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and great is your reward in heaven. Just as he started off, blessed are the poor in spirit, he ends the declarations of blessing, blessed are the persecuted. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He, this is the message he came to proclaim. He says, you can be blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness because so were the prophets before you. So what's the opposite? The opposite of being uh, persecuted for righteousness is to be, timid, uh, to be timid and make decisions that are motivated by, the, uh, motivated by the fear of the response of others. I'll say that again. The opposite of being persecuted for righteousness is to be timid and make decisions motivated by the response of others. It's what the Bible calls the fear of man. And the scripture about the fear of man is in Proverbs 29, verse 25. It tells us this, fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. So the Bible says to have that fear of people, to make decisions only motivated by what is the response of people, why is that a dangerous trap? Because ultimately, it's going to lead you to disobedience to God. When I have the fear of man, I can't have the fear of man and be obeying God at the same time. So you have to ask yourself, is the condition of my unhappiness, could it be a result that I'm afraid to take a step of faith? Is the condition of unhappiness a result that you're afraid to take that next step of faith God is calling you to for fear of persecution? The reward, Jesus says, is the kingdom of heaven. Turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, as you think about Jesus saying, Blessed are the persecuted. For so the prophets were before you. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, coming after the chapter 11, where it speaks about these prophets and these patriarchs and these men and women of faith that have gone before us, notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says this Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So how can being persecuted for righteousness bring us happiness? I would say this, because it's strengthening us in our faith and reminding us of our citizenship in heaven. Being persecuted leads to happiness because it is strengthening us in our faith and it's reminding us of our citizenship in heaven. So as we look at these Beatitudes, I would just end with this, with a question for you. And not to answer to me, but to answer right to God. And that question is, are you happy? And do you understand happiness as God has described it? Do we understand the definition that God has given us, uh, what that looks like to be happy? And if you've answered no, I'd encourage you to go back through this list of things and ask those questions before you and God and say, God, where have I fallen short in attaining your happiness? Remembering this, that the happiness of this world is empty. The happiness of the vices of this world will will only be temporary. But the happiness that comes from God, he said, is rich and satisfying, that they are eternal. But I also want you to remember this. I, I want us to be careful to listen to this Bible study, or to go through these things, because of course all of us want to be happy. But be careful of this, please. Don't, don't try to strive to be poor in spirit, or to strive to mourn, or to strive to, uh, you know, to be merciful, or to hunger and thirst for righteousness, or to be meek, or to be the peacemaker, or to be pure in heart, or to be persecuted. Don't strive for those things, but abide in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, And so if I'm saved by faith through grace, that's also how I'm sanctified. That's also how I grow. And the reality is I can't usher in happiness. But happiness was gonna come, it's gonna come through abiding in Jesus Christ. The thing that we have that the disciples didn't is we have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, they were astonished at this teaching, but they didn't have the Holy the indwelling of the Holy Spirit yet. That was yet to come. That's what's available to you. That's what's available to me. And that's the very power in us to, to fulfill what Jesus is calling us to do here. And so as we conclude, I would just want to remind you when you're in a season of unhappiness, remember, God does want you to be happy. God wants you to be full of joy. That's what God has called us to in this life. He's called us to a life of rich and satisfying in him. It doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. But even in the midst of pain, and, and de- independent of our circumstances, we can still have the happiness and joy of the Lord. Amen? So let's pray. And, and as we pray, um, I just want to encourage, I mean, this is, uh, you know, we're speaking words of eternity here. And, and I just would say that if there is anybody that could say, you recognize that you came in today, uh, maybe you just have, have not a lot of desire for the word of God, or you came in like that, but you heard this message, and, it, and the Holy Spirit touched your heart, or maybe you're, you're the one that says, you know, I want to believe in Jesus, but I just question his power and authority, and maybe, but maybe the Lord touched you in your heart there. Or maybe you've just been so consumed with the cares and concerns of this life, you can just honestly, like the Holy Spirit showed you, hey, I haven't truly been walking with him. If that's you, I want to invite you, I want you to invite you to follow Jesus. Remember, as the disciples came to him, this is your opportunity to proclaim publicly that I choose Jesus. That I come to him. So if that's you today, um, I I would just ask to acknowledge you by just a raising of your hand. And and I would just, you're not acknowledging me. You're not acknowledging people in this room. You're acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ. God incarnate who came down, took upon flesh and died for you. Took his sin upon, took your sin upon himself. And was raised again and alive today. So if that's you today and you'd like to receive Jesus, raise your hand up because I can pray for you. Amen. So I see hands around the room, and we know that there's a crowd listening uh, on Grace FM and even people downstairs. Would you join me in a prayer? And I'm just going to pray over you. If you raise your hand, my encouragement is this. Let this prayer be your own. Prayer is just simply talking to God. So talk to God. Confess your sin. Recognize, God, I've missed your holy and righteous standard, but I believe Jesus took that upon himself for me. So let's pray. And I want to pray over you. Father, I pray for those that that raise their hand to receive salvation or to recommit to you. God, we know that your word is very clear, that when we confess our sin before you, believe in our heart that you were raised from the grave, God, that you say, surely we will be saved. So Lord, I just pray over them, God, and I thank you that today they can be called a child of God. Today they can enter into your kingdom. And I thank you for that. Lord, and as, as I pray for them, Lord, I I know that salvation, as they can receive eternal salvation, I pray for their specific circumstances. God, that you would bring salvation from their current situation. God, that you would continue to progress them in their walk with you. God, we know that you'll keep them and that any that are yours, God, that you'll hold on to them. So Lord, I lift them up to you and I do so in the name of our Lord and Savior Christ. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora.